seat. If you have a copy of the scriptures, and I hope you do, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Pull it up on your device if you'd like to. If not, we'll have it on the screen for you. As you turn into Hebrews, a couple of things I'll share with you. One is this um, minor, I guess, family note or logistics note, somewhat doctrinal. I don't know. Um, bigger deal to me than it's probably going to be to you. But uh, last week uh, during my sermon, as I uh, used Cain and Abel and their story as an illustration of a point, uh, I managed to accidentally in my brain grab facts from the story, uh, not of Cain and Abel, but of Jacob and Esau. And even now I'm questioning myself if that's correct, but I'm pretty sure that's what I did. And apply that to the names Cain and Abel. Um, we, everybody in my community group this week seemed to think it was no big deal and kind of chuckled it off. But man, it's been misery for me this week, all right? And so uh, it's important to me. Here's why I just want to point out to you that that was a misspoken moment there. Um, there may be ones that I don't recognize. If so, let me know so I can fix them. But uh, it matters to me so much because I, I just think that integrity in general, and especially as we're spending time opening God's word, uh, even if it's a moment of illustration or, or a story from somebody's life or my life, everything should be true and should be accurate to the best of our possible ability. I, I once had a, had a guy challenge me on a baseball illustration from the late 50s, and finding a picture of that took me about six hours. But when I finally did, I was so thankful that it was true. Okay, so just wanted you to be aware of that and know that I'm working for truth up here all the time because I think that really, really matters. And I hope that you as listeners of God's Word and of preaching of God's Word, whether it be me or anyone else, I hope you are filtering it through the lens of truth. Right, And so wanted to mention that to you. Uh, if you read the story in Genesis of Cain and Abel, it may not sound like what I said last week. All right, that's just the whole point. That's what I'm trying to get to. Uh, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, maybe it could. I don't know, right? Anyway, uh, but if it does, you probably need to swap versions. Anyway, uh, the other thing that I will share with you is that uh, I've been here a little over a year and a half now in Dublin, Georgia. Uh, but it wasn't too long before uh, I met some of you all here and some of the leadership of the church here and started praying through and having the conversation about was God possibly lining things up for us to come here uh, to get to pastor the church. It wasn't too long before that that I got a phone call. It was a phone call that I had really hoped to get for a long time in my life. It was from a guy that uh, is a little bit of a mentor for me, a guy that I've always held great respect for uh, from a distance. We've had some conversations from time to time and kind of a guy that I've always said uh, to Jamie, you know, if he ever calls and says, hey, I want you to pray about coming and doing ministry with me. I'm just going to assume that that's God telling me the answer is yes, right? Like I, it's just, I want to do ministry with this guy. I love this guy. I love his heart for the Lord. I get a call from that guy and he asked me uh, about a ministry job at a church that he started a couple of years ago. And, um, he's asking me if I'm interested in coming to be the lead student pastor over the youth of the church. And so I'm thinking about that, and I start to daydream, and I just love the church that he's at now, and I love what God is doing there, um, seeing multiple multiple adults confess faith in Jesus for the first time. People are, it's just awesome stuff happening there. I love the church. I love him. love the whole deal. Uh, I, I spent several years as a youth pastor years ago and just loved it, ate it up. It, it was awesome. Uh, had a great time in that season of life. And so I start thinking through this thing about I'm going to be a youth pastor. I'm going to lead others to do youth ministry. I'm going to get to hang out with students. And I start trying to convince myself that that's a really good idea, even though 40-year-old me has about one-third of the energy that 25-year-old me had as a youth pastor. 
I start, yeah, you're gonna, it's going to be good, though. I keep having the whispers in the back of my brain like, hey, they do lock-ins those last all night, right? I, I, keep, I, keep, I think that, and then I'll be like, oh, but it'll be fine just one night every now and then. And then I start hearing, well, you're going to need to go to football games every Friday night, and you're tired sometimes on a Friday. And I'm like, it's okay, I'll go tired. And I'm just telling myself any objection that's logical that my brain can bring up, I'm able to immediately shoot it down somehow or another. And I'm moving in the direction. I'm having conversations with them. We're planning a time for me to come up and spend time at the church there. And, man, just thank God, bless God. At some point, God just brought me to a point of honesty with myself where I had to just swallow hard as a guy who was in a, in a unique season of life and been through some, some hard times uh, as a family, been through some interesting times in ministry, I was serving as an interim pastor at a church, but praying about, God, I'm ready to go back into doing this with my full-time occupational life. And here's a job sitting right in front of me that I've always thought I'd love to work with this guy. It was so hard for me to swallow deeply and just be honest with myself and go, I don't think I really even want to do this. (laughs) It really was because so much about it lined up and so much about it made sense. It was hard for me to come to grips with my own desires about this and to be honest with myself it can be that way in life sometimes it's kind of a weird paradox because when we become honest with ourselves about our own desires it it oftentimes leads us into seasons of freedom it oftentimes alleviates a lot of extra burden that we're carrying and yet in the moment when we get honest with ourselves about it it can feel like a massive letdown even to ourselves if not to others the family business or maybe the family line of work. Your great-grandpappy was a lawyer, and, and then your grandpappy was a lawyer, and then your pappy was a lawyer, and, and it's time for you to lawyer up, and you're going, man, I don't like lawyering. <laughs> but there's an expectation, and you've known it your whole life. It's not Nobody said you have to. Somebody might have even said to you, hey, you don't have to. But internally, you felt, hey, I have to. And there's that moment where you have to come to grips with it deep down and go, hey, I'm... I think this may be everybody else's dream and plan for me, but it's not mine. I don't really want that. You may have had to have that hard conversation with somebody you were in a relationship with for a long time, right? Where you needed to say to them, hey, listen, hopefully you didn't start out with, listen, it's not you, it's me. I mean, I hope you didn't say that. But but the two of you had talked future and long distance and there were dreams about what it was going to look like and you had to come to a point where even though it might have been easier to just keep the relationship going because it was easy and comfortable, at the end of the day it wasn't sincere and you had to be honest with yourself and them and that was hard, wasn't it? Some of you in the room are going, I would love to get to be that person. I'm always on the other side of that conversation. (laughs) It's not real fun on either one, is it? The reality is that acknowledging motivations gone missing can bring misery to us. It can be tough, right? When we have to acknowledge and come to grips with the truth of what we really are desiring and wanting in our souls, that oftentimes is a really hard experience. And yet it oftentimes leads to freedom. It leads to less burden. We started a few weeks ago and we conclude today a Bible study series in which we're hoping that God will just shine his big divine flashlight into our souls and help us to discern our desires. And we started with just the big question of, do you truly want to share life with Jesus? Or stated differently and more simply, maybe just do you desire God? 
Not do you know you're supposed to, not do you think you're supposed to say that as the answer, not, none of that stuff. Do you actually, in the core of your heart, desire God? And we've walked through some of the pitfalls of the things that can strangle out that desire and cause us to trip up in that desire. And we even talked last week about what it looks like to have true desire for God when we're in seasons of distress in our lives. So we saw last week a guy in Psalm 42 saying, man, I very much desire God, but the way that that's communicated and presented, the way that looks in my life right now is not clean and pretty. It's more desperate longing. And I'm saying, God, where are you? God, what are you up to? So we've talked through how our flesh can trip us up. We've talked through how we have to guide ourselves to delight in God, and that will produce desire for him in us. It's a cyclical rotation. We've talked through that, and we landed last week at that place of, okay, this is how you express desire for God, even when you're hurting deeply. But today, as we wrap things up, I want God's word, I hope, and it's been my prayer, we'll, we'll sit down in the heart's, of maybe three different folks in the room, right? One is, when you ask yourself that question, if I have to be honest with myself, God, do I really desire you? Do I desire God? One person might say no. I'm just being honest, and listen, I hope you will be and can be honest. And your answer may be no, because at the end of the day, you don't truly have a relationship of faith in Jesus with God. You've done a lot of the stuff, and a lot of people think you are, and you might have thought you were at one point, but at the end of the day, there's, there's a chance that our answer may be no because we have never had that initial spark of desire for God placed in us. Secondly, you could be a person who would say, no, I, I have to be honest with myself and say, I don't see any or much desire for God in my heart, but, but I truly know him. It's just that life has beaten that desire down and crowded that desire out. My, my desire for God is, is on life support. Right? And thirdly would be pretty much any of us. That if you're not that second person, at some point you very well could be. I'm not hoping that for you, but the reality shows scripture full of faithful followers of God who end up in really tense and, and really weakened spots of faith. Right? Or if you're not, you hopefully will have the chance to interact with somebody and uplift somebody who is. So what I hope God does as we look at Hebrews today is this, is that he would give us some guidance and some direction for the moments or the instances in our hearts when the answer is truly no, I I don't really desire God. That's the, the first and best thing we can do is be honest about that, and then let's get some guidance from the book of Hebrews. We probably know less about the book of Hebrews contextually than we do about most books of the New Testament. We don't know who the author was we don't know who the specific intended original audience was. We can gather from reading the book of Hebrews, though, that it was written probably to Jewish Christians, to people that knew the, the Jewish ways that had been raised in the Old Covenant that we read about in the Old Testament with its sacrifices and laws and traditions and ceremonies. They'd probably been raised in that, and many of the readers were probably converts to following Jesus. They understood that Jesus was what all that stuff pointed to. And so we see a whole lot of um, reference to the Old Covenant and the things there. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to say all that stuff that was good and, and when it was achieving that purpose it was intended for, it was good, but, but Jesus is greater. The covenant you have with Jesus is better. That's the whole big point. So we know that these were probably Jewish Christians, and that's the point of the book. And we can tell from the book that they were probably facing opposition in their faith. 
that because of them trusting in Jesus, hard things were coming their way. We don't know details, but if we're going just with, with the ancient world and what that typically looked like, it was oftentimes hard socially, and sometimes it would even potentially threaten your life physically. And they're facing hardship. And so this book is written to say, listen, don't give up on Jesus and go back to the old way of relating to God. Stick with it because he is better and he is greater. It's kind of what's going on in Hebrews chapter 12 as their faith is under fire. We'll read starting in verse 1. It says this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Stop there for the moment. So chapter 12 starts with the word therefore. If you're doing solid Bible study, I was taught, and I think it's right, that anytime you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what's it there for. The word therefore always connects what's about to be said or the information that's about to be presented to the arguments and the foundation that's already been laid previously. And so by saying therefore, what the author is saying, what God has inspired through the author is this. Hey, what I've been saying to you just a second ago has a lot of importance for what I'm about to say to you next. You see that even more so because he sums it up in the little uh, quote there. He says, therefore, comma, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, comma. I believe that's a summation of what the therefore is about. It's the whole chapter of Hebrews 11. The whole chapter is about faith. It defines faith for us in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things not yet seen. It goes and had to to show us the importance of faith in a relational aspect in verse 6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? So faith is you actually believing in something that's not tangibly happened yet, but you're trusting in it. And if you're going to have a relationship with God, you have to trust that he is true, he is real, he does exist, and that he likes it when you seek him out, when you desire him and come near him with your thoughts and attention and the efforts of your life. When you're coming towards him, he likes that and he rewards you by getting to know him. That's verse 6. And then it lists out all these people, 16 at least by name, different people and their example of faith. And they're broken people, they're tattered people, they're imperfect people, and yet they lived by faith. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 39 and 40, we're told a couple of things, that they are models of faith, that they're exemplary in their faith, even though they never got to take hold of the thing at the very end. The big prize, the big object, the big deal at the very end, understanding Jesus as the Messiah, placing personal hope in him. They had great faith in what they had available to them to understand about God's plan for a Messiah, but, but it was pre-Jesus, so they couldn't have it all. Then we're told in verse 40, but, but we do. There's something better even than what they experienced And it's life with Jesus that we have access to now by the person of his spirit indwelling us. He says, therefore, right? That was a big, long lot of explanation, but it's important. He says, therefore, because you have this great cloud of witnesses, right? I I don't know in 2024 or 2023 or 2020 and beyond for that matter. I don't know if in my life I've heard somebody talk about a group of people as a cloud, right? 
Just hanging out in public. Like, man, I was at that concert. Big old cloud. I don't think anybody's ever said that before, right? But it was very common, right? In, in this day and time, it was used to say in the way that raindrops are accumulated into a cloud and squeezed so tightly together, it's saying this is a great cloud of witnesses. You got a bunch of people who have lived by faith and they were imperfect and they did not get to grab everything that they hoped to grab in understanding and experiencing. And yet they walked forward by faith. Look at them. Pay attention to them. Be instructed by their lives. Be encouraged by their lives, he's saying. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, maybe this week it would be a great moment for you to sit with God for 20 minutes and read Hebrews chapter 11. And go, God, I want faith like that. Teach me. So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... He says, that's true, so then I'm going to tell you to do something. He says, let us also, like they did, I think is what he's saying, let us also lay aside every weight. These are people, remember, that are struggling in their faith. These are people who have opposition, and some of it is opposition they can't do anything about. When somebody's trying to stone you and they're hurling rocks at you, you can't say, stop throwing rocks at me, and it just stops. Can't just put that away, right? But he says, every weight that's there present in your soul, everything that would hold you back or that would restrain you from being able to pursue God, we might say for our terminology today, everything that would hinder you from desiring God, take that off and lay it aside. Pick it up and be done with it. The, the term here is actually used as like taking off a garment and, and throwing it over to the, to the side of the bed is what I do. You probably put it in a dirty clothes hamper or something, right? I don't think my wife's in here today, so I can say that without her getting mad later, okay? Right, he's saying, take, is she in here? Oh. (laughs) Well, at least I didn't do the Cain and Abel thing today. Um, Not yet. There's plenty of scripture left. Uh, Anyway, the idea is, hey, you take it off, you place it to the side, because you're not making use of it right now. Anything that would hinder. Now, I want to make sure you hear this. In this phrase, he's not talking about things that are necessarily sinful. He's not talking about things that are necessarily wrong. He's saying, evaluate and assess your life. And if you're going, hey, I believe that I truly know Jesus, but I don't see any or much desire for God in me, then one thing you might do practically is assess your life and go, God, is there anything in me that's hindering desire for you? Is there anything, would you lay that blank check before him and go, God, here it is. I'm really asking you to show me. Is there anything at all in me that would hinder desire for you? It doesn't have to be a sinful thing. It doesn't have to be a wrong thing. I was in about seventh or eighth grade and I wore a nine and a half size shoe and I really wanted to wear a 10. Right? Particular type of shoe came out one year, modeled after basketball star Chris Weber. Right? He was the guy back in the day. I wanted to be like Chris Weber. Chris Weber's shoes were the coolest. Had to have the Chris Webbers. Went to the store. As best I can recall it, they didn't even have them in my size. And so I convinced my mom that my foot really was in need of about a 10 and a half because that's what they had. I wore two pair of socks most of the time anyway. I said, Mom, so it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. But here's the thing. I started wearing the things, and they were flopping around on me like clown shoes. Okay, They were way too big. And I also don't like it when the toes of my shoes get creased. You may not care if yours are creased up and it just look crazy folded. Great. Okay, I don't care at all about yours. I don't like it when mine are creased. And these shoes are too big and they're starting to want to fold at the end. And so what I did 
was take balls of paper and wad them up as tight as I could and stick them in the end of my shoes. I thought that way the leather can't press down and crease and look gross and, and not cool. <laughs> and so for weeks, I was running around doing life, walking down the halls, playing basketball in the gym with my toes crunched up against some paper balls in the end of my shoe. I was running around like this right here, just looking like I was in pain. Right? I was trying to help my cool points. And there's nothing at all wrong with putting paper in your shoes other than it's a little strange. But it was something that was hindering me from doing something called basketball, which is what the shoes were made for. right? So if I actually wanted to be good at ball, I had to decide to get rid of this thing. This may be the most important question that, that comes forth today. See, we're inclined to think about well, I know my sin patterns and I know the things that obviously don't honor God and I'm wrestling with those or I'm not quite ready. But man, sometimes we're not so willing to lay everything on the table and go, even if it's not sinful, God, would I be willing to move this out of my life if it hinders my desire for you? Pastor's in it right now. I don't have to tell you, I've mentioned it before, it's very obvious. I, I, I don't always eat super healthy. I don't know that there's not like a thing in the Bible that says like, hey, to honor God best, this is your calorie count for the day and make sure you have this many units of protein and yada, 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 yada. That's not in there, right? But I do know that just eating whatever you want to whenever you want to is probably not the plan that helps you see God the best. <laughs> in my life, I've gotten into a habit of just wandering into the, the, the kitchen and, and whatever came to mind, right? So if I wandered in there throwing something in the trash and next thing I know I was having a thought about an ice cream sandwich then I'm going to have an ice cream sandwich. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but I'm working on it. <laughs> it seems small, it seems insignificant, but I'm just telling you my energy level was different. My mind clarity was different, and so I've started working on getting that out of my life. Because if it's not helping me see God and desire God, I don't want it. Now, the next time we have a, a church fellowship meal and you see me eating a, a spoon of ice cream, don't slap it out of my hand. I didn't say I'm cutting everything out, right? <laughs> Unless you saw me eat one the night before, then slap it out of my hand and say, I love you, Pastor, all right? Are we willing to cut the things out of our lives that would minimize our desire for God? He says, listen, lay aside everything. We won't talk about this next phrase quite as much because we talked about it a couple weeks ago with the desires of our flesh, but he says, listen, throw away and cut off the sin that so easily entangles, or our version says, clings so closely. Listen, follower of Jesus, we act like we're so high and mighty and above, and we're cleaned up and got it going on, and we're all together. Sin clings easily and closely to us if we let it. <laughs> Some of the great, most faithful people in Scripture, it's really obvious that sin could get attached really quickly and wreak havoc. You're not above that. And, and the question for us is not do we not have intentions on sinning, but do we intend to make sure we don't? Are we going to war against sin that would blind or obstruct our view of God? He says, lay aside every weight, cut off every sin. And he says, then run with endurance. Right? It's, it's hard to run 
this imagery that's used multiple times in Scripture, multiple times by Paul, this run with Jesus towards him. It says if you want to run with God, then you're going to need to look at Jesus. It's hard to do that when you're carrying a bunch of extra stuff. If you've ever tried to run full speed carrying a toddler, you know that there's a difference in carrying toddler and not carrying toddler. Now, whether it's wise to try to do it carrying a toddler is a whole other conversation. It was my buddy Shane who did it, so we'll talk about it later, okay? It wasn't me. Right? But he says, put all that aside and run with endurance, run with commitment. And here's the key, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. He says, don't just run. Don't just run in, in the direction of what you best guess is honoring God. Don't just aimlessly get out there and go, I hope this is it. Don't just try to be a quote-unquote good person. He says, if you want to know where to run, if you want to go in the right direction, then make sure your vision is placed on the right person. His name is Jesus. Why? Because our focus determines our direction. Where I'm looking has a whole lot to do with where I'm going. That's why it doesn't work out very well to stare at a cell phone and watch a a two-minute-long YouTube video as you're driving a car. Because all of a sudden, the direction I was going is altered just enough for me to be in the median and have a wreck. (laughs) It's why when you're looking this way and walking that way, you run into things. Had it happen a couple days ago. Right? What you focus on impacts and often determines your direction. And so he says, look at Jesus. I think a great question for us is, what does that actually practically mean? And maybe even more important is, do we even know Jesus well enough to know if we're looking at him? If I was staring my soul at Jesus, am I familiar enough with Jesus? Do I know him well enough that I would go, oh, that's definitely him? And our our quick knee-jerk answer to that would probably be like, yeah, But if it was compared with some empty religion that looked a whole lot like things that honor Jesus, but it was without him, would we know the difference? If it looked a whole lot like a lot of emotionalism and good feelings, and I love good feelings from God, especially when they're about God, but they're not everything. Truth trumps feelings. If it was a big feeling of good stuff about God that didn't line up with truth about God, would we know the difference? Several years ago, I was going to meet two of my friends at a big outdoor concert event with several bands, and it was hosted at an old airstrip. And my friend, April, that I had not seen in quite some time, she had a, a little girl. She was about three. Her name was Joran. I had seen Joran once and held her when she was a little bitty baby. And as I was planning to meet April and our other friend, mutual friend, Gina, I was going to meet them there, and April was going to bring her daughter, Joran. I was going to get to see her again. And man, I've always loved kids. I just do. And so I was like, man, I'm going to see Jordan. And they started talking to Jordan about it. You're going to see Mr. Jason. And I could hear her on the phone in the background. like, yeah. And I was like, she loves me. It's perfect, right? A little kid's love can shape your world. And if that's not you, something's wrong with you and we'll pray later, okay? But it just can, right? And I was excited about it. I'll never forget. I pulled up to, to the event and I got out, got parked finally. I started walking towards them and I'm on the phone with one of them. And I hear April say, I'm talking to Gina, the other friend. I hear April in the background say, Joran, there's Mr. Jason. Go get him. I hadn't seen them yet, but they see me. And in a minute, I see kind of parting the crowds coming through at about kneecap level as this little toddler just running in my direction with everything she's got. 
And my heart got so big and I was so happy and I started to get down. And about the time she got from me to probably about that back wall back there, she got close enough to give me a good look and realize she didn't have a clue who I was. <laughs> Not a clue. She, she started slowing down a little bit and then she got there a little, little bit more and I was like, Jordan, come here, girl. And then she did probably exactly what her mom had trained her to do. When somebody's calling your name that you don't know and they're holding their hands out, go the other way. That's what she did, right? She went, ah, and turned and started running the other direction. You see, she was fired up about running to me, but then she realized she didn't even really truly know me. Do we know Jesus so much that we would know if we're actually looking at him. I'm not asking you, can you answer 7,000 Bible questions? Are you a doctorate in theology? I'm just asking you, have you spent time with the risen Lord Jesus? Have you sought him out in his word and through prayer, and do you know him? Because here's the deal. Our drive to see Jesus is fueled by having seen Jesus. <laughs> You're going, where's the desire in my heart for God? I'm not promising you that, that you spend some time with God one day and, and the desire just cranks up through the roof and it's there forever that way in your life. I don't think that's true to the human experience or the scriptures. But I am telling you that when we consistently seek out and we have the moment of seeing Jesus clearly, that that turns into more desire for us to see him. This is not a new statement around here. It might be a little bit different terminology. We've said this two or three times in the last year and a half. It's my aim to say the things that the Bible says more often. I want to say them more often. The Bible says look to Jesus all the time. Put your vision up above where God is, it says. Right? Over and over again, we're told, behold him. Look, if we're not looking at Jesus, we're not going to flourish in the Christian life. I'm not saying that to be a defeatist. I'm saying that to be an opportunist to say to you, there is an amazing opportunity before you, and it is life with Jesus. But to do life as a Christian, you have to look at Christ. <laughs> you got to behold him. He says, cut this stuff off. If your answer would be no, cut this stuff off out of your life. Do everything you know how to do to set your eyes on Jesus. How would we know if it's him? I believe we get some ideas. The next two verses. We'll start back at the beginning of verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How does looking at Jesus spur on desire for God? How does it charge us up to actually want to do life with God if we put our heart's attention on Jesus? How does that work? He says, well, look, he's the, the perfecter of your faith and the author of your faith. He's the one who kind of created the whole faith thing. He's the one who stirred it up in you. Did you make a genuine decision to follow Jesus? Absolutely. Did you do that apart from him having drawn your heart? Absolutely not. The scripture's clear. He made up the whole faith thing. He started the whole process of it being implemented in your life. You're going, hey, I'm struggling in my faith. I'm struggling in my desire for God. Look to the one who created it. Look to the one who installed it in you. So look to the author, and also he's the perfecter. He's the one who finishes it perfectly, who does it just 
right. It says, look to him. This is who he is. How do we know that we can trust he's the founder and perfecter? Because he endured the cross. And this is not just a story that you've colored on a coloring sheet in Sunday school years ago. This is a reality of real pieces of wood nailed together to form a big cross and real metal spikes driven through his flesh and him willingly taking it. He says, listen, this is who he is. This is what he's done. He's endured the cross for you. And he's despised the shame of it. He took on all the shame of the whole world, all the sinfulness and all that. He goes, I'll live in that. I'll carry that for the time necessary. He's done that. Why? It told us in our verse. I love this. It said that in doing this painful thing, in doing this willing sacrifice, there was something out there for him in the distance. It was joy that was set before him. That Jesus went through the pain and the agony. He lived through the faithfulness because he knew that out there in front of all this was a joy for him in setting captives free and pleasing his holy father. See, Jesus understood something that we have a hard time with as a culture that I have a hard time with. You just heard about the ice cream sandwiches. It's called delayed gratification. We live in a culture where we go, hey, you need a little shot of, of a good brain chemical to wash over, make you feel good and happy, pull that phone out, right? You can get one every six seconds. Just hit that button, something new will happen. You'll go, oh, your brain will go, oh. And the problem with that is it's really neat when it happens, and then you're sitting around at your house, and you don't have your phone, and you're like, where's my oh, right? We don't like to delay it and put it off. We don't like to work hard and wait on things that are coming one day. But it says, here's what Jesus did. He endured pain. He lived faithfully even when it didn't feel good because he knew there was joy for him in the long run. Part of my Bible reading this morning in Genesis was the story of Jacob and him wanting to marry a daughter of a man named Laban named Rachel. And it says that they made this agreement, which my immediate thought just in in my simple mind was like, thank God this is not how it works anymore. Made this agreement with her dad that he would work for seven years and then he would get to marry her. Like, boo-boo, I would have worked for all the years it took, but it makes me nervous to think about if I really would have, to be honest, right? If, if, if your dad had said, yeah, you got her seven years, though, seven years, come back and see me, I'd be like, that's a long time, Jimbo. That's what I would have thought, right? But he says, seven years. He worked for seven years. If you remember the story, Laban actually tricked him. He had to work for another seven years to get the lady that he actually loved. So he worked for 14 years. And here's the verse that caught my attention today, probably because I was thinking about this delayed gratification thing. It said that the time that he spent working seemed to him as just a few days because of the love in his heart. It's script. It's inspired by God. <laughs> Deal with it. It's got to be true. <laughs> Seven years. I didn't do the math. I should have. Seven times 365. That's more than 2,100 days. 14. I'm just doing that by a double. It's really easy. My 4,200 days plus some more. Since he did all this work and all this labor. He did all this stuff because he loved her so much. And because he loved her so much, it made it seem just like a few days. <coughs> Handful of days to him, to his heart, to his soul. Jesus went through absolute agony and torment that we'll never fully understand or imagine. 
And I could not speak so boldly as to say that that only felt like just a light few moments for him. But I can say that he did it because of what was set before him. And when we fix our eyes on him, and we see that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he has despised the shame that would be ours. Do you hate the feeling of shame? Do you hate the experience of you having shame? So does Jesus. He doesn't want you to have it either. He died on the cross to remove it. When you look at him and see that he's done all of those things, all of a sudden you go, man, I want to run towards him. And right now, I may not feel a high quotient of desire for God. Right now, I may not be at a level 10, but I'm going to keep tracking towards him because I believe in him and I trust in him that it is coming. Listen, desire for God is strengthened when reflections of Jesus' acts lead to personal care for Jesus. When it leads to me actually personally caring about Jesus Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you're here today and you're weary and faint-hearted, listen, we want to be a real church for real people, and if that's you, you're not in the wrong place, we're glad you're here. But I wouldn't love you well if I didn't encourage you not to just live with it and just stick there and just grind it out and white-knuckle it and hope it gets better. The text says, if you don't want to grow weary and faint-hearted, then what do you do? You consider Jesus. What I think he's saying here is when I intellectually consider the things that Jesus has done, when I intellectually consider Jesus' acts on my behalf, when I intellectually consider these things that he has done, these truths, these facts, it shifts me from an intellectually only consideration to a relational consideration, and I start to actually care about the person who is Jesus. Following Jesus is not a code of conduct. It's not a matter of pure and only morality. Following Jesus is first and foremost about a relationship with a person who died and who has risen again, who is God in us, with us. You want to see desire grow for him? Reflect on what he's done for you. Don't let yourself shirk away from it easily. Don't just read past it. Just so happens that in my daily reading today, it was on my little schedule. I'm not just picking parts. It was about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's so easy having read it a bunch. And it's so easy being in a hurry and having things on your mind. It's so easy because it's painful stuff to read, to just read past it and go, thank you, Jesus, and be done. But what if you just let yourself sit with it? And you go, this was a real person who was God, and he really did these things. When I reflect on the acts of Jesus, it'll lead me to care personally for him. It's going to be a hard word, but then we'll be done. You might sit here today and go, well, I've tried that, and it didn't work really well, and I think verse 4 would be a, a hard but great answer for us to consider He says, listen, consider this Jesus and the way he was beaten, the way he was torn up and his faithful in the midst of it all. Consider him and see your personal consideration for him grow. And if you would say, hey, I tried it, it didn't work, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. (laughs) 
What's he saying? He's saying the barometer. The barometer for how badly do I want to trust and chase after Jesus even when it's hard, even when I don't feel it. The barometer for that is bloodshed. (laughs) Not discomfort. Not inconvenience. Not I'm going to be around some people that I'm not necessarily that comfortable around because we're trying to love them like Jesus. None of that stuff. Not being made fun of. Not looking different culturally because I don't participate in all the same things. Or because I do participate in things that don't make sense to them. None of that stuff is the barometer. The barometer is, have you yet so aligned yourself to say, I want you, God. And whether I feel that right now or not, I choose to. This is not me faking it until I feel it. This is me trusting God no matter what. Not faking anything. I'm choosing to set my eyes on Jesus. I'm choosing to walk my life in his direction as much as I can devotionally, morally, in every aspect. I want to walk towards him, beholding him, looking at him. And I'm just trusting God that as soon as it's the right thing, you're going to bring a whole bunch of that felt desire. But even if you don't, I'm going to trust you. And I'm so sad on it that I would even be willing to shed my blood. Would I, Jason, be willing to shed my blood? If I was in a place of, hey, recant Jesus and your life can be spared, I have prayed multiple times in my life, and I will continue to when it comes to mind, that God would give me the grace necessary in that moment to stand strong and say, no, Jesus is everything. But guess what? In the moments when my patience is tried and I want to make the little comment, in the moments when it would be easier to be lazy in the moments when I really, really like playoff football, especially nighttime playoff football, but I haven't spent any time with God yet today. You can watch the playoffs tonight, okay? That's not, I'm talking about my life. In the moments when real life collides with desire for God, guess what? I hadn't even had come close to having to shed my blood. One time as a youth pastor, they threw eggs and the shells busted in my beard and made me bleed. I guess, I don't know if that kind of counts, right? I don't think so. Listen, church, I'm going to be 100% honest and open with you right now. I don't even know how to end this moment and what to say at the end of this big enough that our souls would wrap around and be incited towards the idea that God is worth your full-fledged desire. He will not disappoint. He may not show up in five minutes. He's not a bag of microwavable popcorn, but he will not disappoint. He rewards those who seek him. You don't get rewarded with money and all the stuff you want. You get rewarded with what you were seeking, and that's him. That's his promise. It's not mine, so I can make it boldly. Dublin Bible Church, I want more than anything as I'm praying about the future of our church and what that looks like, I'm wanting God to give us specifics and how do we reach our community more. and all. I'm asking for all that stuff, but let me tell you what I want more than anything is to be a group of people who just have a just burning, driving desire for God. Because if that happens, everything else will work itself out. I'm confident. The band's going to come. We're going to have a moment to sing. You may stand and sing with all your heart. You may be sitting here today and you may go, I've been to church like a billion times, but, but I don't truly desire God because I don't truly know God. Maybe you just need to find somebody. Come find me. I'd love to help you answer any questions or pray with you, whatever I can do. 
I'll be right up here. Find a friend. Whatever you need to do in this moment, do what it takes to respond to God in a way that's sincere, that's real, and that asks Him to increase your desire for Him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for ideas that are so true and so big that I don't even know how to stretch my mind, my soul, or my words around them. God, reclaim desire for you in our hearts today. Awaken it, God. Bring it back up. Give us our sensibilities back. Whether hardship has caused us to check out on desiring you. Doubt has caused us to give up. Thoughts that we don't know what to do with. Questions that we don't have answers to about faith or whatever it is, God, I pray that you would punch past all of that and you would reach deep into us and you would wake up desire for you not to be a moral person first and foremost, not to do my Christian obligatory duty, but desire for you, God. You are alive. You're hearing us today, our hearts, the things we're lifting to you silently even now. You care about us more than we care about ourselves. God, and we just would say honestly and and feebly, we believe, but help our unbelief. We desire God, but give us more. God, whatever it looks like for you to do that in our lives. Please do it. Whatever needs to happen in this moment is a catalyst towards that. Please do it. Give us courage to respond honestly. I want to ask everybody here today just to help me keep my integrity. Would you just, in an attitude or posture or prayer, just kind of close your eyes? You don't always have to close your eyes to pray, but would you help me by doing that just now? And even our musicians and everybody. I'm just asking everybody in the room, would you just just close your eyes for just a moment? Help me keep my integrity just by saying that nobody's looking around. And I'm including even myself. My eyes are closed. I'm not looking either. It's not about you and me. This is about you and God. But I want to give you a tangible way to express yourself to God. So with nobody looking as best I can say, including me, if you would say, God, my desire for you is weak. God, I'm not sure if there is any. Or maybe you need to say, hey, God, I, I don't know if I even know you. If that's you today, just as an expression from your heart to God, would you just lift your hand up to him? Nobody looking. So God, I stand at the front of that line wanting more of you. And assuming that there is a line and there are others, I ask now that you would lead us from the point of acknowledging our need to the point of walking forward to see you grow it in us. Show us how.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.